0: Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10am service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us. And check out our website at mpbc.org.au Good
1: morning. I'm going to bring our Bible reading for today. There's two passages. The first passage is from Ephesians chapter 5 verses 8 to 13. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. The second is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Another one of our Beatitudes that we're going through. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Thanks be to God.
0: So when you think of purity... What comes to your mind? Some of you might be thinking of something maybe angelic or cherub-like. Maybe it's something conceptual which seems unattainable. Or maybe when you think of purity, you might be thinking of something a little bit more negative. Maybe purity is something you heard about in high school, about how when you lose your virginity, you're like a tissue that's been used and nobody wants anymore. For many, to be pure is to be seen as condescending, condemning, to be out of touch with desire. Linda K. Klein, in her book, Pure, writes about the lasting effects of purity culture. Regarding her childhood youth group friends who are now well into adulthood, she said that many of them had experiences that mimic symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. She says... Based on our nightmares, panic attacks, and paranoia, one might think that my childhood friends had been to war. And in fact, we had. We went to war with ourselves, war with our bodies, war with our own sexual natures, all under the strict command of the church. Linda ended up leaving the church in part because of that experience. It's saddening that some people have experienced purity in such a negative light. But the way many of us in this world view purity is vastly different to the idea of purity that is presented in the Bible. For the modern self, inner purity is being consistent with what you feel is good, true or desirable, not what any outside authority has to say. So sociologist Robert Beller calls this expressive individualism, the right to express ourselves however we want. In expressive individualism, each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. Our own core feelings reign supreme. What matters most is not what others say or what religion or philosophy says, but how I feel. How I date, what I spend my money on, what I do with my time, family, career, It's governed by me and nobody else. As long as I'm true to myself, to my inner longings and desires, that's what's pure. So inner purity seeks a new center of authority, the self. In doing so, it legitimizes the wants and desires of ourselves. The problem with this is that refusing to limit self-expression can be harmful to society. So on May 29th, 2015, Ross Ulbricht, a graduate of Penn State, was sentenced to double life imprisonment plus 40 years without the possibility of parole. What was his crime? Starting and running the Silk Road, a black market for free exchange of goods and services on the dark web. The Silk Road facilitated all kinds of secret transactions, including identity fraud, money laundering, The trafficking of narcotics, assault rifles, poisonous substances, body parts, and even murder. Ulbricht was making millions. At one point, the site processed 500,000 United States dollars a week in sales. However, he stated his reason for starting Silk Road wasn't to get rich, but to give people the freedom to buy and sell whatever they want. As a student of libertarian philosophy, he was principally committed to individual freedom and expression regardless of its impact on society. When the judge passed Ulbricht's double life sentence, she said, what you did was terribly destructive to our social fabric. Ulbricht replied, I am not a self-centered sociopathic person that was trying to express some inner badness. I do love freedom. I wanted to empower people to be able to make choices in their lives. What Ulbricht didn't realize was that his love for freedom did in fact unleash inner badness, revealing freedom's need for moral restraint. But he was consistent with his beliefs, reflecting a kind of inner purity. Unfortunately, this came at the expense of the greater good. So now we've entered this chapter of the church where we're rethinking mission, looking at our part to play in God's mission in the world. I'm sure there's already been some really challenging discussions going on in all of your connect groups, and it's gonna be really great to bring all of this together in the new future as a community. But imagine what would happen if a whole group of people inclined to expressive individualism came together while doing this exact process in another church. Someone puts forward a vision for the group. They all agree, but then they begin to realize Their individual passions aren't being adopted by the group. One person is passionate about adoption. One person is dedicated to ending human trafficking. Another is adamant about racial justice. While the passions of each individual are admirable, each wants his or her cause to get more attention over the others. Another group of people push back feeling that their age group is being neglected, while others are lonely and want to experience more community. Meanwhile, a number of families face serious life stresses and they can't imagine devoting more emotional resources to other people's causes. They're just holding on for dear life. Others face deep personal issues and require sustained care and counselling, but they feel nobody understands what they're going through. So they decide to look for another community or a church. So Matthew 16:24 says, take up your cross and follow me. But expressive individualism says, take up your cause and follow the self. Expressive individualism works against the grain of the gospel. So in the Roman Empire, criminals carrying a cross to their execution was a public expression of submission to the state. The law had been broken and walking under a cross signified that order had been restored. When we take up our cross, it's in submission to God's kingdom. We're saying to Jesus, I submit and prioritize your rule and order. We renounce the reign of self for the rule of Christ, permitting him to reorder our lives however he sees fit. The complicated thing about expressive individualism within the church is that many of those individual concerns are really valid. Jesus, in fact, calls us to many of them The issue, however, is not that our concerns are invalid, it's that they're ultimate. They place the deeper joy of taking up our cross and following Jesus. If everyone got their way, society would devolve into chaos and relationships to ruin. Individual expression has got to be held in check by something. What's the right standard to restrain this wild individualism? Well, Our culture has a very simple counter to this. It's called doing the right thing. So doing the right thing is another way that we define what is pure. Instead of focusing on our inner feelings, we can focus on our outward actions. It's what you do when nobody's looking that counts. Despite what you're feeling on the inside, displaying a steady moral character is an example of outward purity. So Benjamin Franklin, he's one of the founding fathers of the United States, founder of the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia's first fire department, inventor of the lightning rod and bifocal glasses. So if you've got any of those, you can thank Benjamin Franklin. In his autobiography, he wrote about his natural, his habitual efforts to improve his own moral character. And he attributed his success to living according to a little book that described 13 Christian virtues, which he developed at the age of 20. However, within this book, he redefined the meanings of classical virtues to reflect a more utilitarian moral belief. So in particular, he described chastity, also known as purity, as never injuring your own or another's reputation. Note the redaction of any emotional value, desires and intent. For all his accomplishments and accolades, like many of us, Franklin fell short in a few areas. His emphasis on getting things done came at the expense of neglecting others. He was notoriously absent from home, spending years abroad in London and Paris, away from his family. During one period, he had gone away from his wife and children for 10 years, while his wife had two strokes. He frequently wrote to her, promising to return home soon, but failed to do so. As an absent father, his relationship with his eldest son grew tense, eventually leading to alienation. And what was Franklin doing all those years? Besides his lobbying ventures, he was known to frequent brothels and had quite a few mistresses, one of whom bore him a son named William. And Franklin recorded some of his exploits in that autobiography that he wrote and letters, some of which were not published until much later. One infamous letter was dubbed, advice to a friend on choosing a mistress. For someone who promoted a life of morality through his 13 virtues, there was clearly a disconnect in his practice of purity. Franklin attributed his success to behavior, but he lacked the inner purity to set him straight. So evidently, outward purity in itself is not enough. The problem is we can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. It could be the applause of others, affirmation on social media, uh, having a good standing in society, or even just to make ourselves feel a little bit better. <clears throat> it's being kind to your coworkers or schoolmates on the surface, but then secretly, secretly being crushed when they experience any level of success. It's abstaining from sex while indulging in sexual fantasies. It's joining a community group just to be seen rather than to see others. It's checking in with God's word just to check a box on your reading plan. It's thinking primarily about the appearance of our spiritual lives, not caring about what pleases God, but what pleases ourselves and others. I'm not trying to say that our actions don't matter if our motivations aren't noble. Like, say you're serving at a local homeless shelter, a couple hundred homeless men and women line up to get a hot meal and a warm smile from caring people. Bob, one of the guys on the team, is chatting with these these people, but then he pulls out his phone to take a selfie with, with another man. Afterwards, you see a post up on Instagram, and it says, love serving the needy in our city with the hashtag be the change you want to see. Is it possible Bob was motivated by self-righteousness or vanity as he served the poor? Or, yeah. But does that render his service useless? No. Taking time out of his busy schedule to serve the marginalised of his city, is a good thing. But is it a virtuous thing? Was it pure? Probably not. <clears throat> the problem with this is that while our outward actions may seem pure to those on the outside, we both know, and God knows, our true intentions. 1 Samuel sixteen seven reads, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God doesn't want shallow Christian outward purity. God wants your heart. Really, what we're doing here is kind of defining hypocrisy, right? Our actions don't always match up with our beliefs. If you're here today, maybe you've been hurt by somebody in the church because of hypocrisy. Maybe their actions and their words didn't line up with what was actually in their heart. Maybe you even walked away from your faith because you hated this type of hypocrisy. The thing is, nobody hates hypocrisy more than Jesus. Jesus calls this kind of hypocrisy out in Matthew 23, 25 to 28. And he addresses the Pharisees. So you see, for the Pharisees, it's, it was all about following the rules. There were 613 rules in the Torah, 1,500 commandments in another collection called the Mishnah. They thought that by separating themselves from those who they deemed unworthy and incapable of following these rules, that they were being holy. And so the Pharisees didn't want to associate with sinners. They didn't want to associate with tax collectors. They prided themselves on staying as true to the law as they could. They didn't want it to infect this image of purity that they've created for themselves. It's this emphasis on outward action that leads Jesus to call the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, dead and unclean on the inside. The ironic part is that those people that the Pharisees were avoiding were exactly the people that Jesus associated himself with. If you hate hypocrisy in the church, know that God hates it too. So we have these modern definitions of inner purity, expressive individualism, and outer purity, our outward actions, ignorant of how we feel, which hold kind of a tension between one another. How do we bring motivation and action together to achieve true purity? Jesus' solution is purity of the heart. But what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see the kingdom of God? Some philosophers say that modern Western culture limits the word heart to just feelings. We often think that the heart only refers to the way we feel, or maybe our emotions. But the heart in like biblical Hebrew thinking includes the entire inner life of the person. The feelings, the mind, the will are all a part of the heart. So being pure in heart means setting our heart, our whole being on one thing with no dueling ambitions. Not focusing on the self or our outward expressions it means setting our heart on one thing alone and that one thing is God. If we can't do that, if our definition of purity is focused on the self, oh, sorry, and we can't do that if our definition of purity is focused on the self, I think we can agree that many of us would like to see God's kingdom come, established on earth as it is in heaven. But in addition to that, many of us would, wouldn't only like to see God's kingdom come, We'd also like to get a better home, a nicer job, better grades. We'd like a new vacation, like our kids to get into a good school, and we'd like that relationship to finally work out. The problem is that many of us desire good things that are are at war with what Jesus tells us to desire, which is him. Jesus isn't asking to be first on a list of many desires. He's asking to be our only desire because anything less than that is idolatry. And the Old Testament, when people practiced idolatry, it really meant that they denied God altogether and replaced him with some other deity. It often meant that they kept God and maybe even kept him first in their list, but then they added other gods to him just to cover their bases. They were kind of hedging their bets. So does that mean we have to quit our jobs and stop caring about our grades stop caring about the future of our children whether, or whether our house is functional? Well, I believe the answer is fortunately no. Ephesians 5, 8-15 reads, and this is, I'm reading from the NLT. Uh, For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret, but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. So instead of focusing our desires purely on ourselves, instead of living lives of expressive individualism, we can carefully determine what pleases the Lord and align our desires with his we can do the right things for the right reasons through Jesus' invitation of a pure heart. So let's look at an example of this. Say you've come to a point in your life where maybe you're looking to move out from where you live. You can look at amenities, close public transport, affordability, proximity to where your work or school is located, etc. And these are obviously important things that we should consider. But what if we reframe that? What if we took the opportunity to be on mission with God in our decision-making? What if we carefully discerned what pleases the Lord and set our heart on God? What if we asked him where he's already on the move, where he's working, where he wants to break out? What if we asked, how can we partner with you, Lord? Maybe you would approach the decision around the location of your new home with the focus on, who most needs the gospel or who needs to encounter somebody that carries the spirit of God. You might pray for discernment on what neighborhood God is looking to place you in for his purpose. You might even look at the layout of prospective properties and choose the one which would best allow God to use that space for connect groups or gatherings and fellowship. If we did more of this, what would it look like if we pursued God first in every area of our lives. Maybe you're single and looking for a partner. Ask yourself, are you just looking for comfort and a companion, or are you looking for a co-laborer to bring about God's will on earth? What about all of you who are thinking about the direction of your career? What if you started thinking about which industry most needed redemptive work or which offices most needed the gospel And what about earning potential that allows you to bankroll the ministry of God in our community? What if instead of taking a list of desires and moving Jesus to the top, we actually move Jesus to the center, to the heart of every desire that we had? Colossians 3, 23, 24 says, "'Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward.' it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And 1 Corinthians 10 31 reads, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. What you do matters to God because you are God's chosen instrument to to being about his kingdom here on earth. So purity of the heart doesn't mean, just mean living a life of unlimited expression of the self or a shallow external portrayal of purity. It's not about abstaining from all these pleasures and privileges. It's about leveraging all these pleasures and privileges for his kingdom's purpose. It's allowing God's will on earth to be the single driving force of every decision that you make. So if that's what it means to have a pure, pure heart, how do you cultivate one? Well, Firstly, you must ache to encounter God. and encounter with God is truly our only hope for having pure hearts. Truly seeing God is the only way to do it. In this beatitude, the promise is that if you purify your hearts, you'll actually see God. And this is really important because when you see God, you're changed. When you see God, your desires are changed. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So God says that we can seek him and we can find him when we seek him with whole pure hearts. That's why you'll hear people like me say that the gospel is transformative, right? Because it is. When you set your focus, where you set your focus determines the shape of your life. You become what you behold. So, if we're setting our focus on God with all of our being, we're being transformed to be more like Jesus, to live lives like Jesus. And if we want that, we need to encounter God. As we draw closer to God, we become more aware of the things that separate us from Him. And it's going to sound very church to stand up here and talk about sin, but it's kind of unavoidable when talking about purity, isn't it? And really, we shouldn't be opposed to talking about sin because it's the barrier present in every one of our lives, I know that I'm far from immune from it. So as we partner with God in that renewal and transformation, we need to seek to flee from sin. Don't entertain it. Don't flirt with the edges of it. Don't invite it home with you. And this will, this will come more naturally in the 222. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue, pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So in order to do that, we need to point our bodies in the direction that we want them to go. We need to put ourselves in positions to succeed, away from temptations that coerce us into sin. Do you want to honour God and others with your words and not stumble into gossip or grumbling? Flee from those environments which you feel most tempted to do that. Are you and your partner practicing celibacy before marriage? Discuss openly with each other the boundaries that you want to have in place to bring honor to God and stick to them. Don't put yourself in scenarios where you might be tempted to push those boundaries. Do you you find yourself dealing with issues through harmful means? Pray to God for his counsel. If you can, step back from the places or objects that draw you down. Talk to someone you trust openly and vulnerably. And seek professional help if you need. We all need to admit to ourselves what the sin is that's crept into our hearts. So identify all the situations and environments and times where you feel most tempted to fall into that. Then ruthlessly cut out those environments out of your life in order to draw closer to God. Fleeing from sin isn't just about what you're running from. It's about who you're running to. You might be sitting there thinking, who am I really hurting here? Why does it actually matter what goes on in my heart? This doesn't really work in the real world. And this is why confession is so important. In order to really overcome sin and pursue purity of heart, we must be committed to confessing honestly, frequently, before God and others. I think we're often so quick to condemn celebrities or political figures when they make mistakes, right? But what if what you are hiding actually got found out. What would be the consequences of that? Could it destroy your friendships? Maybe your community group? Maybe your marriage? But what if, instead of being found out, we actually dug our sin out of the darkness and into the light? It's out of God's compassion that he requires confession. Because in the darkness, sin corrodes the heart. But in the light, there's mercy, there's grace, there's freedom, and there's forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 reads, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So what sin do you have to drag into the light today? When we name our sin and confess it, we have power over it. James 5.6 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's no shame in admitting when you're down. We can't allow pride to rob us from our healing. And it's clear from this verse that community also plays such an important role in supporting one another through this process of confession. Maybe this looks like having some select friends and family who you can elect to keep you accountable, equipping them with questions and phrases to allow you to reflect your motives and intentions back onto yourself when you least see it. Or maybe this looks like engaging with your connect group and using that space as one where you can be vulnerable and open about your lives and struggles together in community. And if you're not in the connect group, you're welcome to use our website on the top menu on the next steps and connect groups to fill out a quick form and we'll we'll find one suitable for you. Or you can speak, to a per, speak in person to one of the connect group facilitators on the board in the foyer. What that will do is allow you to go further together than you can on your own. Because when you're discouraged, they'll encourage you. And when you're tired, they'll carry you. When you need support, they'll be there to support you. Because we're all made for community. To be pure in heart is not to partake in expressive individualism. It's not to be a hypocrite through our actions for the wrong reasons. To be pure in heart is to set our heart on one thing and one thing alone in God. As the band comes back up, ask yourself, what sin do you need to wrestle into the light today? Don't spend another day in the darkness, because in the light, there's hope, there's freedom, and there's healing. In the light, there's a good God waiting to welcome home the people he loves. We are called to partner with God, to encounter him, to seek him, and to see him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God.